Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. What's the name of your town? Keokuk. It's in the very southeast corner. It's at the confluence of the Mississippi and the Des Moines. Can't go any further south or east in Iowa. Is this your family farm or? Yep. Yep. It's my dad and I. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah it I... used to be a dairy farm up until 2011. So I've been doing it full time for 10 years now. You don't meet many young farmers that are just starting out. So I assumed it was your, your family farm. It's about impossible. Good. It's doing pretty well. We're on the smaller end, but we make it work that way. Good, good. Hey, Jim. Hi, Jim. Hi, folks. My volume was all the way up. and it... <laughs> I tend to talk too loud anyway. My wife tells me I yell in, in, when I'm talking on the phone. So, How you doing, Jonathan? Good. How are you doing? Very good. I was just telling uh, Brent, I try to do, I, if I don't get out and do swimming or play racquetball or something, I just sit here all week. And so I, I started my swimming again. Does wear you out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the reading this week was awesome. I'll tell you, that was some powerful stuff. Which part? The blog. In fact, I, you know, I've got some questions about your blog posts that were linked to that were really good. Um and I want to ask you about that, but the Wendell, I love Wendell Berry and I've read him for, you know, quite some time. I'd never read that poem before. That was, and I've seen some of his Mad Farmer poems, but that, yeah. that Mad Farmer poem was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. shared that with a whole bunch of people. I was just texting that out to people all week. So oh, like, you gotta read this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's quite something. How you doing, David? I'm uh, doing pretty good. Made a cup of coffee. Keep me awake for class here. Oh, yeah, I hate it when you start snoring when I'm talking. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, you said you had some questions on the on the reading, so let's let's start there. Okay, the one essay that was in your blog on on kind of the three psychological ideas that are expressed in Paul in terms of the flesh. You know, the the inside out, and and right, right, I right. was, you know, I feel like I I. I sort of had an idea what you're talking about, but I would, I, I would appreciate it if you would kind of expand on that just a little bit. Uh, I will expand on that a lot. What what I'm doing there is doing Lacanian and Zizekian. Uh, I'm appealing to a psychoanalytic literature that takes a bit of explanation, but maybe the key part of the explanation is to say that they both Zizek and Lacan are developing their psychoanalytic theory in conjunction with the Apostle Paul. It fits Paul, but that's no accident. They just created it that way. Lacan, his brother was a monk or something. I think both of them are probably atheists. Zizek more clearly an atheist than Lacan. But uh, for Zizek, he calls himself a Pauline materialist. And so Zizek has taken up a Lacanian understanding and in fact developed it further and also developed it in conjunction further with the Apostle Paul. So we'll deal with chapter one, and then when we come to chapter two, I'll try to run that down. And I think that Ephesians 2 
is a parallel. You know, he's used, Paul is using uh, the same vocabulary here in a different context. In other words, the other the vocabulary where I dealt with this in my book and where Zizek and Lacan are, are picking it up is Romans chapter 7. They see Romans 7 as true, a, a true description of the human psyche. Actually, there's a whole group George, Giorgio Agamben, uh, Elaine Badu, they're all atheists. I assume, Matt, is, is, is that a correct description of Agamben? I assume he's an atheist. He's a Catholic atheist. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that makes a difference. Uh, but they're all picking up Paul, and especially, particularly, the, Paul's description in Romans 7. So I'll, I'll come back to that, but... I think it's a profound insight that they have that can be developed and is certainly an insight, I think, into the whole structure that Paul is just continually dealing with. Okay, anything else on the reading? I didn't really answer that question, but I, hopefully I will before the evening is, is finished. I've heard this word mentioned in all the classes, but I don't feel like I have a uh, the, the width and the depth of it. Just the word economy, the economy of the Father and the Son. Oh, that's good. That's a that's a good question. We probably need to answer that question before we even begin tonight. Maybe it's simplistic. I don't think it's simplistic. I understand that there is a, basically a singular economy attached to what is called sin. And by economy, just meaning the system of exchange, the dynamic, the desire, the motivating force behind it. Partly what we're doing in Ephesians, when we're talking about both the economy that is the problem and the, the economy or the thing that is the solution, we're describing a world, you know, what John would call a cosmos. And in that cosmos, it, it is just the uh, cause and effect. I don't feel like I'm doing very good. It has its, everything may have its own gravity or something that, that keeps it together or. Yes. So it's, it's all, yeah, always present. Yes. Sort of. Yeah. It, it is the explanatory reality. Well, the way you're using it is, you know, how something works. You know, we talk about the economy of salvation or the facets that are involved. Like think about in uh, sort of monetary terms, everything that's involved with the economy, there's all sorts of different factors, but they're, they're sort of definite factors that make up how it all works. You know, the transactional, whether it's the transactional or just the ideas are involved. Or in the last class that we talked about, you know, Paul talked about the reification. So there's different ways of, um, there's different ideas that are involved with the economy of how something functions. But that's kind of what I, that's kind of how I would explain it. So like a first cousin word might be ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's precisely where I want to begin tonight is to talk about a, a multiplicity of words in the New Testament, walking with Christ, being joined with Christ, being in Christ, uh, being ad adopted into the family. But of course, the, the negative illustration of what I'm describing is take a passage like Romans 6, and it talks about being baptized into Christ and baptized into the likeness of his death and the likeness of his resurrection. In my blog this week, I did an example from James Dunn, 
who takes that example, and I think it's just abhorrent, I think his description. It's not just that we don't participate in Christ in any real sense in Dunn's understanding, but in his description of the way that language works in conjunction, you know, subject, object, and language, that the subject is removed from the object. He actually appeals to Plato in Parmenides to explain his own understanding of the economy that Paul is appealing to. And of course, in that understanding, there is no real-world participation in Christ. And so this understanding, I mean, I think it's just sub-Christian, that if there is not a participation in Christ, uh, I don't know what Christianity is, but not just that, I think you almost lose reality in the typical, and that's what I'm describing. I sum up what he's doing as a kind of nominalism. And nominalism is a philosophical, theological understanding that gripped the portion of the Western world. It began, you know, with Franciscans in the Roman Catholic Church, but then Martin Luther and John Calvin Luther at the University of Wittenberg is trained and saturated in what is called nominalism. And so nominalism does to the Bible just exactly, in other words, it's almost like Dunn is illustrating for us what happens when you buy into uh, a kind of nominalist understanding. And, And the idea is that there is no participation no uh, actual partaking of the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, there is, uh, beyond that, nominalism is saying that uh, there is no access to any universals. And what is meant by universals, if we just say that in theological terms, there is no access to the reality of who God is in himself. This all may sound real obscure to you, uh, if you haven't encountered it. No, uh, doesn't sound obscure. It doesn't? Okay. Uh, it is Protestant, but it's not just Protestant. Today, uh, uh, strangely enough, Richard Rohr is a uh, Catholic Franciscan priest who's very popular, and I, I kind of like some of Rohr's stuff, but he's he's basically, I, I think, a nominalist. The irony is that if you would say, what has disenchanted the world? You know, what? where has secularism ar- arisen? I would say that it's in conjunction with nominalism and voluntarism, which is a conjoined understanding that God just randomly chooses. Maybe the, the strongest expression of this is in a Zwinglian, in, you know, one of the reformers, Zwingli. He talks about baptism and communion, that it is a sign that is in no way connected to what it signifies. In other words, it's just a, a sign, but is not connected to the significance of the of, of who Christ is. About a year ago, I was talking with a friend. He listens for like an hour at least, or meditates an hour daily. At Indian, he lives. I think he lives in California. I think I'll just call it group meditation. So he was telling me, uh, Jim, I I used to go to church and. Uh, just got turned off because to me it was like watching a cooking show you'd see all this you know preparation and talk and they show the ingredients and they just talk and talk and talk but you never never get to eat anything 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the problem. I don't yeah. know if that connects or not, but yeah, yeah, it it's just pervasive, and to name it, it it is so pervasive. It's like the forest, you know, you you can't you can't see the forest for the trees. That's sort of one of the things that nominalism is just the world that we've come to inhabit, and in theology, this is going to pop up in notions like the imminent trinity as opposed to the economic trinity. And what can be meant by that is the imminent trinity is one that we do not have access to, whereas the economic trinity is not really connected to who God is in himself. And so we have somebody like uh, Reinhold Niebuhr come, come along and he says, well, the economic trinity is the imminent trinity. Well, I don't know about all the dates and stuff, but I was just thinking that we were talking about an economy earlier, so it's a little bit weird that things like Protestantism, the state, nominalism, volunteerism, you know, sort of cap the kind of beginning stages of capitalism, you know, modernity, the Enlightenment, they all sort of come into being right around sort of the same time, right? And kind of coincide with the birth of secularism and how that's a different kind of alternative sort of economy or, or even kingdom. That's it. That's it. That, you know, secularism is, uh, again, uh, the eminent frame. Charles Taylor. Charles, Charles Taylor. The, the, I'm about to launch in, Jim, to a continuation of answering your question. This is the key question. And I think that what is being described by Paul and that is going to be taken up in the early church is precisely not a, you know, they, they don't have the modern problem. And I think if we had understood Paul and this idea, we would have avoided the many of the failures that we have, not only in theology, but in terms of philosophy and culture. And that is the, the word here, uh, anaphileo, or the summing up that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1.10. The uh, summing up is, uh, I just, this is just from the Theological Dictionary, uh, is to bring something to its main point, its gist, its sum, its comprehensive sum. So the verb sum up, the noun, you know, a summary, but then the uh, ana, the prefix, is to say uh, again, uh, so that the idea of Re recapitulating or doing again or summing up again the way that this the word that we have in English that uh, Irenaeus is just using uh, anacophileo from Paul but is the word recapitulation and so in Irenaeus this becomes one of the earliest doctrines of the atonement but what what is meant here by doctrine of atonement is this economy Jim mm -hmm. that is he's saying this word or this concept is descriptive of what's happening in the work of Christ. And so Paul talks about the summing up, the recapitulation of all things, and he goes through, you know, this is there in the first chapter, but the idea of all things, ta panta, things in heaven and things in earth. And then throughout Ephesians, he's going to talk that way that it is a, a summing up, that all things have been placed under Christ's feet, are derived, and there is one God and Father through all. So when Paul says all, when we're talking about the economy, 
or we're talking about atonement, while it's certainly inclusive of human beings, I, at least my understanding of this recapitulation is it's cosmic. And I think that was I think that's Paul's understanding and that's Irenaeus's understanding. We did a bit of that last week, right? We talked about that Paul is talking cosmic and inclusive. So this is the theological dictionary. Schleier is the, the writer here. The summing up of the total totality takes place in its subjection to the head, you know, the head being Christ. The subjection of the totality of the head is the coordinating of the head and the church. As the church receives its head and totality, it's, uh, you know, the idea of ke uh, kephaleon here, it's, it's totality, it's definitive, it's comprehensive. It's a self-repeating summation in the head in Christ. And so it is recreation, I think. It's cosmic renewal is the idea. So I've just described, you know, I think what Paul is doing, what Irenaeus is doing in this first theological doctrine of the atonement, it is an economy. I, unfortunately, I'm afraid that's what we've lost in atonement theory. You know, when you do penal substitution or uh, I guess uh, that is a, a kind of economy that we'll talk about here in a minute. But of course, I think the economy is exactly wrong. It's an economy in the mind of God. It's a legal, legally bound economy. And so Irenaeus, in, he appeals to the notion that God in Christ set forth a plan, oikonomia, for the fullness, the pleroma of time, to recapitulate in all things in himself. And we might say that this is also Paul, you know, just as Irenaeus is saying, this term encapsulates the economy of the New Testament. So, you know, here when I say economy, that words, other words that we're going to use to plug into this, like walking in Christ, Christ being the head, uh, being adopted into the family, it's all part. We don't need to pause every time and, you know, figure out. I mean, it's helpful to figure out the meaning of the word, but it's not like all of these words are referring to something different. He also appeals to uh, Colossians 3.10, according to the image of him who created him, he indicates the recapitulation of this man who at the beginning was made after the image of God. And of course, here it's Paul's, it's similar to what Paul is doing in Romans 5. The first Adam is recapitulated in the second Adam. But, and as we've talked, the idea is that the second Adam precedes the first Adam. Just as that in, encapsulates the economy, I think this encapsulates the book of Ephesians, that this summing up is telling us what this is, book is about. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. So we can think at that instant, but also extended in time, that feeds into re recapitulation. Yes, you're asking the right question. It, it's at his death, not simply at his death, but that seems to be key. And Irenaeus quotes Matthew uh, 23, 35, the blood of every just man on the earth will be requited. From the blood of the just Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all that all that will come upon this generation. Jesus is recounting the history of murder. That's the first murder and the last murder, right, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And 
uh, his point or Irenaeus's point, by the way, the, uh, Rene Girard does a lot with this passage too. Already we're getting a practical dealing with a real world evil. He was pointing to the future recapitulation in himself of the shedding of the blood of all the just and the prophets from the beginning and the requital of their blood through himself, Irenaeus. He would not have demanded requital unless he, it was to be saved, and the Lord would not have re recapitulated these things in himself if he too had not been made flesh and blood in accordance with the first form work, thus saving in himself at the end what had perished at the beginning in Adam. Notice two things here that are very Pauline. And Irenaeus is, you know, he's building on, on Paul here. That Paul is emphasizing Christ came in the flesh. And Irenaeus is going to talk a lot, you know, that, that the necessity of his being human. And that he is recapitulating, redoing what was a failure in Adam is recapitulated in Christ. And what this means is, well, Adam is just the word human. I mean, man humankind. Uh, however, we want to read the story in, you know, Genesis, the idea is that the image in some way was failed or incomplete or lacking, and Christ then is going to complete the image. He's going to, you know, here is the completion of what was incomplete in the first Adam. Now, we might think of this in regard to sin, but I think it's not simply sin. I think that it is that Christ completes Adam regardless of sin. In other words, it is that sin is the obstacle, but I, I think that the understanding of this in this passage from Ephesians, yes, but the plan from the foundation of the world pertained then to this pre-planned understanding uh, of God. Like Paul, he sees re recapitulation then. This is the way of solving the problem of evil. In recapitulating everything, he recapitulated our war against the enemy. He called forth and defeated the one who at the beginning in Adam had led us captive. And trod on his head, as in Genesis, God said to the serpent, and I will set enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, she will watch your head and you will watch her heel. That here is Christus Victor, but it's Christus Victor tied to recapitulation. And in each of these, it's because death saves as it recapitulates. Jesus' death saves. I don't, the, the problem, by the way, Jonathan, with Zizek and company, they're just going to say death saves. <laughs> So we need to specify. No, that's that's not what's being talked about. Uh, Jesus' death, in other words, it's a defeat of death, saves as it recapitulates or is the culmination of a universal recapitulation. So this is, again, Irenaeus. The maker of the world is truly the word of God. He is our Lord who in the last times was made man existing in this world and invisibly contains everything that was made. And he quotes Wisdom 1-7 here. And was imprinted in the shape of a key. And he's referring to the Greek letter C-H-I, the symbol, you know, for Christ. That Christ is imprinted in the world. I, you know, this is the idea of the cosmic Christ. Uh, 
I, I've illustrated this. If you look at my past blogs, I illustrate it through Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. That was the way some of the early church actually pictured uh, a Vitruvian image. But instead of the, you know, Leonardo, some people think it was he was himself the model. But we can think of Christ as the true Vitruvian Man. That is the the logos, the the key of the universe that marks the entire universe. That's very cool. I never had heard that about the key. That's wonderful. Yeah, and and uh, Irenaeus, you know, just I I always think that. Once you follow Irenaeus, well, this is just origin. This is origins just picking up Irenaeus. And this just sounds a lot like Maximus the Confessor and the Cappadocian Fathers, that they're they're picking up this concept and developing it. And I don't mean I don't mean that in the West we just lost it. That you could never say it's just absent or lost. I don't mean that. But I do think that an Augustinian frame of understanding is certainly going to put up a lot of obstacles to this understanding of a singular economy describing the cosmic order that is recapitulated in Christ, that that's the doctrine that we have in Irenaeus. In origin, it's going to be called apocatastasis. I think it's a synonym or a near synonym. Origin is just using a different word, maybe that's too strong, to describe the same notion of a universe, and universal here, a cosmic salvation. Everything was imprinted with the shape of a key in everything as the word of God governing and disposing everything. Therefore, he came in visible form into his own region, quoting John 1.11, was made flesh, John 1.14, and was hanged from the wood in order to recapitulate everything in himself. I don't know if you've done, you know, with the doctrine of recapitulation, I think Irenaeus is describing two things at once. He's describing the ages of the world as the unfolding of you know, that history goes through stages very much like a person goes through stages. We go through infancy, childhood. That's what Christ does, that he goes through all of these stages. And so he recapitulates all of the stages of a human being in a singular fashion, but I think also in a corporate fashion and in a historical fashion. So recapitulate is a kind of all-inclusive term. Just Paul's summing up. And so Irenaeus, he, he says this is a, he describes it, this is actually a heading in his book. He calls it, the heading is the framework. You know, maybe that's another word, Jim, for economy. The things in heaven are spiritual, while those on earth are the dispensation related to man. Therefore, he recapitulated these in himself by uniting man to the spirit and placing the spirit in man, himself the head of the spirit and giving the spirit to be the head of man. For it is by his spirit that we see and hear and speak. I think the way that Irenaeus is using the term spirit is that's just the life that we have in God that's given to us he is going to equate the breath of God given to the first Adam and the Holy Spirit. Now, I I, I don't know if that's controversial or not. 
asking. You know, the other thing that we're going to have a problem with is the division between nature and grace. We're going to begin to talk about a kind of two-tiered system. I think that if we go with Irenaeus, who I think is just doing Paul, we're going to do away with that nature-grace duality. At least that's my understanding. The nature-grace duality, you know, that in some way nature has an integrity, a coherence, which I would, you know, okay. When, really what we're talking about is a human being. Is there the fullness of a human being apart from its completion, the completion of who we are in Christ? And I would say that we, aren't we, you know, this is Kierkegaard, but the idea that in some way we fail in our humanity, I don't, you know, I don't mean that uh, that, that could be taken in a wrong sense, but uh, the idea is that we're, we're the fullness of who we are as human beings is there completed in Christ. Either I'm solving lots of problems before you may know about them, or you're totally disagreeing with me and saying, no, a, Ro a good Roman Catholic would just say, no, your description is mistaken. Of course, there's a nature and there's grace and there's a two-tiered system. And the history of Western theology is just saturated in the discussion of this two-tiered system. Primarily, Matt, am I right? And and I, I hate to use the characterization of East and West. I don't think that's entirely accurate, but at least it points to an emphasis that is sort of there in the in the West that is lacking in the East. How would you describe it, Matt? Does anybody else have it? You're so humble. <laughs> Anybody else? Certainly in the East is David Bentley Hart envisions it. That may be the accusation. It's those dirty Orthodox theologians that are mischaracterizing our theological understanding in the West. They've misrepresented it entirely. Okay, well, maybe. Would Bear be a culprit, too, in that way of thinking? Uh Sort of lumped in with David Bentley Hart. I don't know that John John Bear would be a, appreciate being lumped in with David Bentley. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's also Eastern Orthodox. What Jim. was the question again? Uh, the the question, question is, in other words, I I what I just did, I I made a huge statement, maybe an overstatement, that what we're encountering in Irenaeus and in this doctrine of recapitulation and in his understanding of the spirit and his picture of the cosmos, is that we're describing that nature is always graced by God, completed by God in Christ. That was the plan from the beginning. There is never a period, you know, and this is kind of our Protestant understanding that, well, God created, and we can talk about that, uh, and then, you know, the, there was the fall, and then Jesus came, and he solved that problem. And so we talk about the two systems as if they are separate. But I think the way that Paul is describing it, the way that Irenaeus is describing it, it's not a two-tiered system. It's not nature over and against grace. But nature is always graced, and there's no such thing as a nature apart from grace. And this... Well, to your John Bear question, he does blurb David Hart Bentley Hart's book on You Are Gods, calling it a brilliant piece of work. So. Okay. There you go. <laughs> oh, they're they're yeah, they're they're in agreement on yeah. this. Yeah. I, this, I mean, this is the ortho I mean, you're offering the orthodox view. I think I'm offering Paul's view. 
that has not been obscured to the extent in the East that it has been in the West? I'm, I'm, I haven't read a lot by Richard Bauckham, but I read a book that quoted um, something he said about, it was in reference to the throne scene in Revelation where before the seven seals where Christ appears as a, I mean, where the slain lamb appears on the throne. This isn't a direct quote, but he's basically saying this isn't, you know, a singular event. It's how God rules the universe. Is that kind of the point, you know, that Uranus was making and that you're talking about, or is that something different? No, at the same point, uh, that, it, that it is cosmic, that creation is completed in Christ. If we want to think of this in terms of, uh, I think where this becomes controversial is specifically in regard to humanity. So that Augustine is going to talk about original sin, and by original sin, he's going to mean something close to what Calvin will develop with total depravity. So he's going. we're going to begin to talk about a human as if a human could have a, its, uh, an integrity and a completeness apart from uh, absent the work of grace in Christ. I just assume that, that there is no such thing. First of all, a human being that has life in the fullness of that meaning apart from Christ. I don't think that humanity, and this is the controversial part about it, I, don't, I would say that, uh, that what Irenaeus and Paul are describing is that humanity has only reached its fullness or completeness in Christ. So there is a kind of ungraced nature in the notion of original sin, but also in, in infernalism, which is certainly not Augustine's invention, but he's going to emphasize infernalism, in, and also in rejecting his uh, apocatastasis in origin. And here a good Roman Catholic would interrupt and say, wait a minute, he's a, a rejecting an origin that is a demonized origin. And that's partly true. In other words, did Augustine really understand origin? He had a perverted, you know, just the, his informants were mistaken. But I think that just what Augustine is doing on his own is, is enough to say at least that there are these obstacles that are put in the way of the notion of participation in God in the sense that we have it in apocatastasis, in theosis, in divinization, in recapitulation. Does anybody ever lose the notion of participation? No, I don't. I, I don't know that you could be a Christian. But there are systems of thought that talk that way. Uh, whether a, a Christian in the pew could ever think that way, I just question. But if you're a really sophisticated theologian, unfortunately, I think the more sophisticated you are on this subject, the more perverse you may be. We're probably just so used to reading Paul, you know, in a less radical way than, you know, than the what he means to be read. Like, because what you were saying in the last lecture, in the last class, was that you have to say what you're saying now for everything to make sense that you said before. That is that Christ is the telos of creation. Christ is this, you know, is the, is the predestined, you know, whatever, the one who was marked out beforehand. That the way, you know, that the way of, you know, the cross, all the, in other words, everything that Paul is going to be talking about, unity, peace, love, all these different themes of Ephesians, the whole reason for all that is because Christ was the the truly human one. 
God yes. incarnate, you know, God incarnate, the, the plan beforehand was for God to become incarnate, whether or not, presumably, at, you know, Adam fell or not. Christ has always been the telos of, of creation. So that so so to talk about a nature grace this as if they're two different things is to miss that very central point. Yeah. Right? Or is that an oversight? Maybe that's an oversight. No, that's it. That's it. Jonathan, you're gonna have to go about your work as a medical doctor. In in a sense, you know, what you're doing or what any good scientist is doing, you have to presume that there is that there is an integrity of coherence to the human body, to human science, to Obviously, that, that uh, that's the case, and you know it's not enough for you just to lay hands on your patients and pray for healing. So I, uh, there is a sense that obviously we believe that that creation has a coherence and integrity, but I think the fullness of that integrity and coherence is really to be found only in Christ, because even that knowledge is one, and so. Jonathan's medical knowledge is a participation in Christ in as much as it's true and good and heal and you know healing and all those different things. Yes. But they're but they're true not because of some nature grace distinction. They're true because they participate by nature in the grace of Christ. Per you know as epistemological knowledge, you know sort of facets of knowledge. Yes. I, did I read the the idea that things in heaven are spiritual, those on earth are a dispensation of man. So he recapitulated, he brought together heaven and earth, is the idea. And that's the God-man. This is the significance of the Chalcedonian formula, the Nicene Creed. I think they're just, they're repeating what Irenaeus is picturing here. Not to say that these guys have in some way fully understood or encapsulated what will be worked out in Chalcedon. And so my point here, this singular word, recapitulation, applies universally. And Irenaeus is indicating a singular economy, Paul, I believe, is also, by which to understand the work of Christ and Christian participation in that work. The word refers to all that God is doing in Christ for the cosmos. And so the new vocabulary of the New Testament in Christ, you know, this is one of the Paul's favorite words, but it's there throughout. That vocabulary and the words like walking, a key term in Ephesians, being adopted, likeness there in Romans, actually it's here in, here in Ephesians, united with part of the body, being joined to the head, being baptized into, partaking of his body. I think we're always just describing the same thing, right? It's this participatory, the word, the big word we use that is so irritating. It is a participatory ontology, and I think recapitulation gets that. And of course, what, what's happened is we've lost that. I won't take the time to illustrate, but if you read my blog, I give the illustration of James Dunn. He, by the way, was one of the key participants in the you know new perspective on Paul but boy that sure didn't save him from atrocious theology before I delved into this stuff I thought Dunn would be I I just presumed he would be a, a major departure from that but his stuff on Romans 6 is I just think terrible and and, and not terrible in, in that it's unique that is that I just think this understanding of a failure, a, a lack of participation, then when you go to the vocabulary of the New Testament, 
you know, you talk about likeness, then you're going to have to do the etymology, the context. You're going to have to, and that's just going to be, you're going to have to repeat that over and over. And so we lose the economy of the New Testament, is my claim, in losing the doctrines of apocatastasis and recapitulation. Or at least we we lose this participatory understanding. One other point here, you know, Irenaeus points to Romans 8.3. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin and to cast it out as a condemned thing. The thing that happens if you lose the term likeness in conjunction with Romans 6, you know, then you're going to also lose the sense of a defeat or defeat of sin in and through Christ's likeness. In other words, if we're not like Christ, if it's just a sign, then the same thing occurs, the same problem occurs with the term likeness in the way that human uh, that Jesus Christ is a human being. Is he just like a human being? Does he resemble a human being? Or is he a human? Is he really human? Same problem. Christ's humanity is described as a likeness to the flesh, and our baptism and you know participation are likeness to the death and resurrection of Christ. Same word. So if we create the obstacle in the one instance, then we create the obstacle in the other instance, and we lose the sense in which Christ defeats sin in the flesh. Irenaeus says that uh, he condemned sin, he cast it out, and is now a condemned thing, away beyond the flesh, but that he might call forth man forth into his own likeness. He appeals to the word. He's appealing to Romans 8.3, assigning him as his own imitator to God and imposing on him his father's law in order that he may see God and granting him power to receive the father, being the word of God who dwelt in man and became the son of man, that he might accustom man to receive God and God to dwell in man according to the good pleasure of the Father. This is against heresies, and of course, I think that in Irenaeus' dealing with the Gnostics, isn't it interesting that he's actually taking on a, a, a false belief that is sort of repeated in what we might call modern Gnosticism, that is, Protestant Christianity. That's too strong. That's too much. But Philip Lee has written a book, the, the Protestant Gnostics, in which he compares Calvinist doctrine to Gnosticism. Even Lee draws back from equating the two. But I think there's a lot of likenesses in the two belief systems. So I think it's no accident that Irenaeus's against the, the Gnostics fits very nicely into refuting what has become modern Christian belief. So recapitulation expresses this all-encompassing economy. I think it gives meaning to the dozens of words in the New Testament. It's describing a participatory ontology. It serves as a picture of the entire economy of salvation and its defeat of sin, death, and the devil. And it describes, you know, we recapitulate it, we, we become who Christ is that uh, there's a full participation in God. And so the maybe the failure in modern atonement theory is the lack of an, this vision in which we would have an understanding of, you know, maybe a, a failure of a, met, a metaphysical understanding 
that falls short of full participation in who God is. And I, so I think we create endless problems for ourselves. And thus arise penal substitution as we have it in Calvinism. Can you rewind and say that last thought? Recapitulation is an all-encompassing economy in that gives us an explanation of how sin, death, and evil are defeated. I don't know, you know, for some of you guys that are coming in new, you may say, well, of course that's what Jesus is doing. But understand, that's kind of what we lost, or that's what is lost in penal substitution. There really is no engagement with the problem of evil. I can't tell that there's a, a, an engagement with any kind of real-world problem at all. That's true, of I think, as much with divine satisfaction. And so you have a problem that is not a human problem, but it's God's problem. But the focus in recapitulation, the focus in this early doctrine of atonement, is on evil, on sin and death and evil, so that there's a real-world defeat. And, of course, this ties into our Walter Wink book, because the, the dealing with the powers. I think a sign of a failed theology is that the focus turns from defeating sin, death, and the devil, or sin, death, and evil, to uh, resolving a problem in the mind of God. It's a meta. It, what you're describing in that shift is a complete metaphysical shift in which the the world, in some way, the cosmos, is no longer part of the redemption story. A wonderful way to say it, Paul, is uh, like if you take penal substitution. It's not cosmic. It's uh, at best individually focused on a transition between between us and God, and that's that's it. There's nothing right. There's nothing else beyond that. That's good. Yeah, limited. Right. It's a limited atonement in many senses. Yeah. Yeah. I was. I'm trying to expand some of my old people reading. I don't mean like you, Paul, like reading your stuff, but I. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading. Um, uh, Julian of Norwich, and uh, she's just she's really graphic in her descriptions of of the crucifixion and all that. And she has this dream where she sees the blood pouring out of Jesus, but then she begins to describe in her dream the blood is not just pouring out the side, but it begins to pour over the whole earth, and it also begins to pour over the whole universe. Uh, all the way to the heavens, and I thought uh, that is a maybe a, a good way to you know to to picture that. That is that's good, yeah. And of course, blood is life. That here's the life of the universe. Here is the the salvation of all things. I think that was the common. That was a, a very common concept. I think that we've individualized, particularized. I think those that's a, a kind of gradual development. Is that idea of shifting the problem of of evil and sin? To the to God itself himself is uh, would, you, would you call that a Gnostic shift? In a Gnostic understanding, there becomes a duality between heaven and earth, and that's what's happening here. That the problem is not an earth problem; the problem is in the mind of God. And so the resolution is that we die and go to heaven in modern Christianity. But that's a very Gnostic understanding too: is that you ascend, you know, through the the various emanations from from the eons and you pass through and you eventually reach. So yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. It is a, a shift toward a dualism. This is kind of my theological quirk. 
I just see the problem as always connected to a dualism. And I see Gnosticism as the archetype of this dualism. So that the focus of the New Testament on these false teachings, it's always, a, the false teaching is always a dualism. A dualism between body and soul, body and mind. A dualism between heaven and earth, you know, flesh and spirit. So that very often it's the, the Gnostics, they would denigrate the body uh, or that, you know, that the body, it doesn't matter what you do in the body. That could go one of two ways, you know, that there are some who say, well, then that's the Cor Corinthians. Well, then everything is permitted because we have total license to do what we want with our bodies. I'm going to talk about this in connection with chapter two. The understanding becomes that me and my body have kind of gone our separate ways. Uh, I'm not my body, that I have my body. That kind of describes what a lot of people think, certainly what a lot of Christians think. That it's not resurrection that saves you, it's your soul departing from your body and ascending into heaven, which is just paganism. It's just Greek. You know, N.T. Wright has recognized this and, you know, that heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world. So, yeah, yeah, I think it is Gnostic. Or at least it has those characteristics. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.